Today's text is Hebrews chapter 8. I'll be preaching out of verses 6 through to the end of the chapter. So here's the, uh, here's the text. But as, it, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you just pray with me for a moment. Lord, I, uh, I present to you the, the work that I've put in this week. Um, ultimately, uh, I can put in a, a great amount of effort, um, and, and nothing may, would be accomplished from it. If the, if the Lord does not build the house, the, the laborers labor in vain. Ultimately, Lord, we are looking for you to illuminate your scriptures to us by your spirit, that you would make us new people through the hearing of your word. So God, we, we um, take this moment now to, to um, make ourselves available to your spirit. We pray that you would work in us and that you would write your laws on our minds and on our hearts. That would, we, would, we would increasingly be people um, who, are, who are ruled by you, people who live under your kingship. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today we're continuing in our series on the book of Hebrews. So on some Sundays, the application of the text, like what, what you're going to kind of walk away with, has a lot to do with how you ought to live. You know, we, we hear the sermon and we walk away knowing how, how the, uh, you know, a certain action in our life should be done differently or something like that. Today, is, it may be less about how we ought to live as much as it is how we ought to read. Christians are people of the word. And what I mean by that is that our way of life is shaped by the scriptures. The, the only way that we become Christian in everything that we do is by immersing ourselves in these scriptures because it's these scriptures that testify to where life really is. So the more we pour into these, the more we respond to God through what he reveals in the scriptures, the more we become baptized across every facet of our life. And that's, that's what we want. That's, the, that's uh, what, what Paul would call sanctification. It's the, the setting apart of all of our life. We do that through the scriptures. We're a people of the word. And so some Sundays, um, we, we, we turn to a text of scripture and we realize that scripture tells us how to read scripture. It's kind of useful that way. And so this is one of those mornings uh, where you're going to turn to the text and we're going to learn a little bit, uh, well, we'll learn ways to live as well, but the, I think the main takeaway will be sort of a way to read. 
So Christians often wonder how the Hebrew Bible, so the, the Old Testament, often wonder how the Hebrew Bible relates to the New Testament. So it's common to find Christians who fall into something that's sort of like Marcionism. So Marcion was a first century church heretic. He uh, came up with, with uh, an idea that um, the God of the Old Testament was actually a different God than the one who sent Jesus. So he, he suggested that as Christians, we ought to jettison the entire Hebrew Bible. Instead, just focus on the teachings of Christ, just focus on the teaching of the apostles, everything that came before the law and the prophets, that was from that other God. And we should ignore what he said, because he was crazy. That was basically Marcion's idea. Um, and so I don't think there are any Christians who hold to actual Marcionism right now. You know, I don't think there's any Christians who actually believe that the God of the, the Old Testament was a different God. But I think we run into a lot of what I would kind of call diet Marcionism, or like Marcionism light. You know, it's, 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 you run to folks who will say that the, that the Old Testament is sort of helpful because you have stories of faith, you learn about God's character. But as for how it actually relates, how it actually has authority over their lives, they find it very hard to articulate that. Very hard to describe why, like, in what way the law, for instance, has authority over the life of the Christian. In what way do the, the, the poetry of the prophets, in what way do, does that have authority over the life of the Christian? And so they, they, you know, I think uh, there are many Christians who run into something like Marcionism, not because they believe there are two gods represented in the scriptures, but because they functionally jettison the Hebrew Bible. They don't know how to put their Bibles together. Hebrews teaches you how to put your Bible together. That's one of the reasons why, why the elders wanted to do this book. There are sort of two reasons, a pastoral reason, but there's also this theological reason that we've been doing a lot of work in Exodus and Matthew and these different things, but Hebrew kind of brings the whole, Hebrews brings the whole picture together. It teaches us how to put our Bibles together. And through reading Hebrews, I think we end up getting introduced to something that theologians call covenantal theology. Covenantal theology. So I don't want to sound like a 2 a.m infomercial, but covenantal theology will revolutionize the way that you read your Bible. So at base, at, 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 at base, covenantal theology is actually pretty simple. You know, like, like anything, you know, uh, when you get, get it working out to the specifics, it gets complicated, but really the, the basic idea is very, very simple. God does things in a certain way. God does things in a certain way and he's still doing them that way. That's covenantal theology. God does things in a certain way, and he's still doing them in that way. So how is it that God does things? He does them through covenant. God works with people through covenant. So a covenant was uh, just basically a kind of relationship. You know, there are some relationships that are so serious that they have to be protected with vows. That's what a covenant is. It's, it's sort of uh, like, a, like a, a marriage vow. You know, that there's a contract involved, but the contract is giving shape to the relationship. That's what a covenant is. So typically what you get with a covenant is you get promises and you get expectations. So God always promises certain things through the covenant. He promises certain ways that he's going to make the covenant happen. And along with the covenant, so those are promises, and then along with the covenant comes a way of life. The people who he enters into covenant with are introduced to a certain way of life. So there's these expectations in the covenant. 
So basically, when, when, you're, when you're looking at the Bible, uh, one of the things that you might observe is that in both the Old Testament, so the Hebrew Scriptures, and the New Testament, God is operating through a covenant. He had a covenant with Israel, and now he has a covenant that he's, that he's you know, working out through the church with Jesus at the center. Um, one of the other things that you might observe is that God's mission in the world remains the same. That God is still doing the same mission that, that starts in Genesis 3, the mission of redeeming all creation with, with people at the, at the center of that. Redeeming creation by redeeming people. That God's still up to that. And the way that he's pursuing that mission is through these covenants. So you might observe that. And then another thing that you might observe is the way that Jesus talks about the Bible. You know, uh, we call ourselves Christians. So to some degree, what we think ought to be shaped by Christ. So Jesus, when he reads the Bible, now I was being facetious, obviously everything that we do should be shaped by Christ. I was understating it for humor. It fell flat. I'm fine with it. Let's move on. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I don't know how Marcion got around that one. I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. So in other words, whatever Jesus is up to, it's not a brand spanking new thing. It's the fulfillment of what God has always been doing. The project that God started with Israel, Jesus sees himself as bringing it to its climax. Here's another spot. On the road to Emmaus, after the resurrection, Jesus told, Jesus encounters these two disciples, and he tells them that all the law and the prophets testify about him. And so whatever's going on in the Old Testament, there has to be a logical um, way in which it testifies to Christ. You know, it, it can't just be like, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it? Like proof texting or that's not it. Uh, just like pulling a text out of thin air just to prove a, a point when it's actually not logically connected to the text. It has to be dyed in the wool. What, what Jesus is describing is that the Hebrew Bible, everything that, that, that it explains, every, all the events that it describes, all of that somehow was was on a trajectory that ends with him, that finds its completion in him. So when we read the Hebrew Bible, we ought to have that in mind, that we are seeing points along a trajectory that leads eventually to Christ. And so what, what many theologians have found as they put all this together is uh, this idea that there is more continuity between the Hebrew Bible and the, more, and the New Testament than there is discontinuity. There's more continuity than there is discontinuity between the two Testaments. And the reason why is because Jesus brings the Old Covenant to its climax. So if there's a big idea today, that's it. Jesus brings the Old Covenant to its climax. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. I had an interesting week. So when uh, sometimes, no matter how hard you work at something, there's that adage that like if you just work hard at it, you can do anything. I... Uh, challenge that after this week. I, <laughs> I think I have very strong reason to believe that that's not true. Um, so uh, I, I worked through the sermon. I felt like I was really on top of it. And then I finished my first point and um, I had seven pages of text, which is usually a, a whole sermon. Um, and that was like Friday at two in the afternoon. So I was like, all right, I guess I'm just preaching the first point this Sunday. You know, there's no going back now. So basically what I'm going to do is preach uh, one part of chapter eight. 
And then next week, I will preach the next part of chapter eight, and then I will have to send Everett an email to ask him if he can preach one week later than I originally asked him. <laughs> so uh, that's what we're doing now. All right, so here's how the, the passage is kind of organized. It's organized in a really cool way on a literary level. In other words, if you're reading it, it does really cool things. So uh, the, built into the passage is a kind of suspense. So chapter eight gives you a fact, and you're like, oh, how did that fact come to be? And then it gives you another fact, and then once again you act, ask, how did that fact come to be? And that gives you another fact. So the pattern is sort of this, because this, because this. It's, that's kind of hard to preach, though, because then in order to, to explain point one to you, I have to explain point two. So I'm flipping it upside down. Uh, so instead of this, because this, because this, I'm doing this, therefore this, therefore this. So we're going to do the back part of chapter eight, and next week do the front part. Uh, Hopefully that makes sense. So today we're just focusing on the covenant. And I'm going to use it kind of as an opportunity to talk through uh, what covenant uh, theology really is. But today we're talking about the climactic covenant, the way in which Jesus brings the old covenant to its climax. So the first question I want to ask today is why is it that we need to enter into a covenant with God? Why is it that our relationship with God has to be shaped by this kind of contractual, you know, limiting sort of relationship. Why do we need to enter into covenant? The reason is that we've become alienated from God. We are not at home with God. So what is an alien? So an alien is someone who's living in a country, but is not yet a citizen of that country. So that country has not yet become their home. On some level, they are a stranger to that place. That's what an alien is. And of course, they can go through a process called naturalization where they become a citizen. It, you know, it takes time, and eventually they can say, this is now my home. I belong here. Now, imagine if that process went in reverse. So imagine if there was somebody who was a citizen, and they became, became unnaturalized, right? So suddenly, uh, somebody shows up at their home and announces to them that you're now a stranger here. You, you have lost your citizenship. You're now an alien in this country. So that person would walk around knowing that they do not belong, that this is not their home, and yet they would still have this feeling that they should be able to call this place home. That is our situation with God. We have become alienated from the one who we should be able to call our home. That alienation isn't just a psychological thing. It's not just a feeling that isn't really true. You know, sometimes folks have kind of a, a therapeutic view of religion, where in order to, to you know, they, they, they would say that what God is really after is to help you recognize that you are at home with God. You know, there, there no, there's nothing that actually does need to change about the relationship. Just the way you think about the relationship needs to change. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we are actually, in fact, alienated from God. We have become denaturalized. We have become strangers to him. And what, what ends up happening is that out of the, the estrangement between us and God, we become strangers to ourselves. We become strangers to each other. And we become strangers to the rest of creation. Now, how do you know that we have become alienated from God? So I'll give you a, a little case study. I think one of the biggest indications that we have become alienated from the Lord is that obeying him feels unnatural. 
if we were not alienated from God, then obeying him would feel natural. His law, to use the words of Jeremiah in this passage, his law would be written on our heart. But it's not. Obeying God feels unnatural. So I, what I want to say is that when we obey God, if I had to like kind of illustrate the way it feel, in which it feels unnatural, I want to say it's like living in a country that's not your own and trying to live by their customs. Originally, that was the illustration that I was thinking about. But it's not really like that, is it? Instead, what it's really like is living in this country by the customs of a different country. Because if you were in another person's country trying to adapt to their way of life, the wind would be kind of at your back, right? It would actually feel increasingly natural for you to, to get used to life in that country, and then eventually it would be natural. That's not really what obeying the Lord feels like most of the time. Most of the time it feels like we are trying to live by the way of another country in this country. So everywhere we look, there's this other totally plausible way to live. Everyone else seems really comfortable with it. And you're trying to practice customs that most people find quaint and sometimes offensive. And you have to admit, sometimes their point of view makes a little sense to you. It's difficult because everything is, is, is uh, because the wind is at your face now. Uh, the, the habits that would come to you naturally are not the ones that you're choosing to take up. Obeying the way of the Lord feels unnatural. At the end of the day, what we are accustomed to is living as though God is not above us. And that's not just because of nurture. It's not just because our parents lived as though God was not above them. What the, what the scriptural writers maintain is that the reason why we are nurtured into sin is, is because it is our nature to sin. We are nurtured into sin because it is our nature to sin. It is in our gut. And this is a problem because it means that what is most natural to us is the alienation from God. That if left to our own devices, we'll constantly pull away. We'll constantly uh, try to uh, assert our own will onto the world. And so in order to redeem humanity... God has to bridge the gap between us. He has to draw us back to himself. And the way that he did that was through covenant. So the first covenant was a covenant he made to the nation of Israel. And with that covenant came promises and expectations. So if you were here a few years back, uh, you may remember when Dan McIntosh was a pastor, a few of us that were involved in the, the elder deacon training, we read a book called God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts. It was a, a nice little book. So Vaughn Roberts sort of summarizes God's promises to Israel with, with three Ps. It's nicely alliterated. He must be a pastor. Uh, people, presence, and place. And I would add a fourth, which is purpose. So some of the promises that God made to Israel is that they would be, a, they would be his people. There'd be a special relationship between them. He told them that he would be with them in a very special way. So his presence and then he also said that, that he would set aside a place for them where they would live under his kingdom. So that's a, so a place. And I would add, add another. Part of what God promised to Israel is that if they followed the way of the covenant, so there were expectations also, promises and expectations. If they followed the expectations, what would eventually happen is Israel would be this sort of outpost for God's kingdom. 
so that somebody could actually look at Israel and say, that is what the kingdom of God is like. It's happening here. So that sort of the, uh, the center of, of God's redemptive plan in the world would be Israel themselves. They would make the kingdom of God available to the world. And so they were given this purpose, this incredible purpose, at the very center of God's plan, provided they followed the way of the Lord. So God was working out this cosmic redemption through them. So his promises to Israel summed up people, presence, place, and purpose. Now the problem was, and, and you see this all throughout the scriptures, is that Israel could not follow the expectations. So the purpose was basically ruled out right away, right? Their purpose of making the kingdom of God available, they weren't able to follow the way of the Lord in the way that they needed to. And so they could not become what they were meant to be. And then eventually what that meant is that they lost the place, they lost the land and exile and everything just sort of fell apart. The covenant dissolved because of uh, what took place. And so what, what you end up seeing in, in uh, the Hebrew scriptures, especially the prophets, you see them sort of uh, lamenting that this has happened. They're, try, they're confused by it. They're trying to work it out. And then you get to Jeremiah. And this is the passage that, that the author quotes here in Hebrews, this, this long piece of poetry here. I think it's pretty cool that the prophets wrote in poetry, but that's just me. So Jeremiah, uh, he's considering how, how the covenant has worked out. And he, he begins to think that this covenant had a fault. It was not perfect. It was going to become obsolete. And the fault is that the covenant could not change people's hearts. So if, now imagine I wanted to let my kid open a lemonade stand. So I give them lemon juice, sugar, water, a jug to mix it in. And I give my kid like, you know, the, full, the classic folding table and there's, you know, a, a tablecloth that may or may not be stained from a previous birthday or whatever. So I, I set them all up for their lemonade stand. I give them some pocket money so they can make change. So now imagine I do all this. I, I give him, you know, uh, he becomes my, my people, right? He's going to be my lemonade stand guy. My presence is there. I'm like inside the house with a cup of coffee watching from the window. Uh, I give him a place, the lemonade stand. I give him a purpose. You're going to sell lemonade. So now imagine that he goes out there gets to the lemonade stand, crosses his arms, and hawks a loogie into the lemonade. So now I have a problem. I've set everything up for him, but, and I can, I can control all those factors. Our, our lemonade covenant included all those things, but it didn't make him want to sell lemonade. It didn't make him a lemonade salesman, right? The covenant didn't have the power to do that. That's the fault of the old covenant. That's the fault of the Old Covenant. So the author of Hebrews quotes this long section written by one of the preachers of ancient Israel, the prophet Jeremiah. And, and right, right out the ballad, just walk through the, the, the poem bit by bit, but it begins with, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. Okay, why do we need a new one? Logically, because the old one doesn't work. And this won't be like the covenant that I made with their fathers. All right, who specifically is he going to mention? On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So we just talked about this. This is the Exodus series that we just walked through. God is saying that from the very beginning of the covenant, the people were not shaped in the way he wanted them to be. That from the very beginning, the covenant had this flaw. That's not because God made a whoopsie. It's because like what we talked about last week, it has planned obsolescence. There's a fulfillment coming, right? 
So he said, they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them. And that's referring to, to when God begins to talk about the, the way that he's going to sort of take Israel apart and put her back together again, uh, which happens in the prophets. So basically, he's talking about the wilderness generation. Uh, Tyler preached on this a few weeks back, that, that the author of Hebrews uh, relies a lot on this wilderness experience. He, he goes back to it a lot, so he's obviously attracted to this passage from Jeremiah. Jeremiah is talking about this wilderness generation who refused to follow the way of the Lord because they did not have it in them. And it's not like they didn't know what it looked like. So the, the, the Israelites had the law. So the, what the law is, it's describing the way of the Lord. That's all the law is really doing. It's describing this is what God's kingdom looks like in this time and place, given these particular circumstances. This is what the kingdom looks like. So they had a description. It's not that they didn't know how to follow God's law. It's that they didn't have it in them to, to do it. The, the engine wouldn't turn over, right? Something inside them had to change. So what was needed was for the people of God to somehow become not lawless, but lawful, full of the law, for it to literally swell up inside of them, to be bubbling out from inside, for the law to be what, they, what is natural to them. And so Jeremiah uh, shares this prophecy that another covenant is coming. And this covenant was going to have the power to do what the old one couldn't do. It would change people's hearts. It would actually make the kingdom of God available to the world. And it would still have all the same elements, right? So it's not a, it's not a completely new thing. It would have a people God's presence would be with them in a climactic way. They would, go, they would, be, they would be, be you know, in the process of preparing for God's place, for his kingdom, by living under his, his rule now. And they would have the same purpose. Their purpose is to make God's kingdom available. So how was it that this covenant was going to be different? So here's what the author of Hebrews says. He says that Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. So in other words, we'll get to, to the first part of that sentence next week, but Christ brings about a better covenant. Why? Because it is enacted, so it's brought about on better promises. What does that mean? So what we saw in the Exodus series was that God is a forgiving God. God is a forgiving God. So he sets up this covenant with Israel, and it's, you know, a couple months later, and they're already, like, building a golden calf statue and worshiping it and doing questionable things around it. And so it's, it's almost instantly that they turn astray and abandon the expectations of the covenant, right? And God, because he is gracious, because he is good, because he's merciful, he forgives them. But that's God making an exception, okay? So the covenant itself wasn't built on forgiveness. The covenant was built on this expectation that Israel is going to follow the way of the Lord. And then they fail. The covenant, you know, God has every right to dissolve the covenant, and he doesn't because he's awesome. Right? He forgives. And then he does it again and again and again. And there's, so the whole progression of the Old Testament is this giant story about how God again and again and again is forgiving. He's revealing who he is by saying, I will not bring about the curses that I should bring about. I will continue to bless. 
I will continue to warn. I will continue to forgive. I will continue to accept your offerings. And then there is a tipping point. And that's what we see in the prophets, is there's this moment where God says, no more. We're done now. And I will no longer accept your, your sacrifices. And he announces that I'm going to take Israel apart and put her back to be, together again. But for the whole story of the Old Testament, we're seeing God forgive and forgive and forgive. But that's not what the Old Covenant was built on. The Old Covenant uh, depended on Israel rising to the occasion. The New Covenant depends on Christ rising to the occasion. That's the difference. Forgiveness has become the foundation. What, the, what Jeremiah says here, I'll just read, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I'll be their God, they'll be my people. And then he, he gets, so he's, he's describing what, what the old covenant wasn't able to accomplish, right? So this is the, the very way of the Lord bubbling out of people. It, it, it is them, right? It's, it's, it's in them to do it. They won't teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, know the Lord. They'll all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. And then you ask, well, how is this going to happen, though? Right? Because that's what the word for means. It's, it's, uh, if you're following along, this is verse 12. Uh, you know, for, because. So how is this going to happen? I will be merciful toward their iniquities, I will remember their sins no more. So internalize how, how important that is. He's not saying, I'll continue to be forgiving. What he's actually saying is that the, the very way in which the covenant will operate will be through the forgiveness of sins. That the whole thing will be made effective because of this divine act of forgiveness that's going to kick the whole thing off that God will forgive in this climactic, awesome way, and that will be the basis of the covenant, and the people who will be drawn into that covenant will be changed from the inside out because of this forgiveness. Does that make sense? Forgiveness is the foundation of this thing. This is the forgiveness given to us in the cross of Christ. God's grace in Christ changes us from the inside out. We are no longer scratching and crawling our way to God. God has come near. We are no longer laboring, trying to prove ourselves to be God's people. God has declared us his people. We don't muster up our goodness and make ourselves presentable and then go to God. God comes to us when we are yet sinners, enemies of God, unpresentable, unfit, and he loved us. He loves us as he loved the tax collectors and sinners, the unpresentable, as he loved the centurion who represented the oppressive power at the time as he loved the leper and the unclean, as he loved the crowds and all their confusion, as he loved the soldiers who nailed him to the crossbeam and the rulers who mocked while they did it. He loved them. And when we read the scriptures, we should read about those figures and identify with them. Because it is those people to whom he extended forgiveness, and it is to us that he extends forgiveness. And of course, when we look back on the Old Testament and, and read the way that he related to Israel, 
we realize that this is just how God has always been. So when God forgave them back then, it was a mercy that he gave despite the terms of the covenant. Now, forgiveness has become the basis for the covenant. And that's what the author of Hebrews means when he says that the promise is better. The promise when, when Israel was at the foot of Sinai was that if you follow my way, you will become a holy nation, a royal priesthood, my treasured possession, if you remember from back in the summer. If you follow my way, you will become. Now the promise is you are. You are. See, what happens on the cross is that our identities get exchanged with, with Christ. So the uh, great reformer Martin Luther called this the great exchange. But the, the, the basic idea is that we need to be God's people. If anybody was one of God's people, it's Jesus, who is God himself, right? So he's, he's God's people. Uh, but we aren't. We're, that's not natural to us. And so in, in the old way, you, you work in order to become. In the new way, you work because you are. In the cross, Jesus absorbs the, the wrath of God that is stored up for those who are not God's people, which is all of us, right, if we aren't united to Christ. And that identity of not God's people is exchanged with Christ's identity of God's people. We are brought in. We are declared to be God's people. And so now we aren't working in order to become. We're becoming who we are. The effort that we put in to learn the way of the Lord, to, to grow in Christ, that's not an effort of trying to become. It's an effort of becoming who we are. We already are God's people because Christ has made us so. So now we work in order to become who we are. So let me point out uh, two ways, maybe three if I have time, um, two ways that this ought to, to shape us. And I, so hopefully this is clear, the, the way in which, um, you know, I, what I'm trying to demonstrate is that there isn't this like bold line between the old covenant and the new, where it's like, you know, what's happening now is totally unrelated. What I'm trying to show is that this is one broad sweep that gets us where we are. So here's a couple of applications. If, if that's all true, right? So covenant, if the covenantal way of reading the Bible is true, which I argue vehemently it is, um, then here's a couple of applications. So it shapes the way that we think about ourselves and the law, uh, and then, if I have time, something else. So ourselves. So covenantal theology shows us something about ourselves. When Jesus showed up, he, he taught that he was taking apart Israel itself, that he was, he was redefining what it was to be part of the people of God. Previously, to, to be one of God's people meant to be part of ethnic Israel. But there are always these signs, especially in the prophets. The prophets are rad, guys. In the prophets, you, you get these little hints here and there where, where they're, they're talking about sort of like an Israel within Israel. You know, which, so Jesus you know, builds on all of that, and he basically says, like, I'm bringing together the true people of God. It will not have ethnic Israel at the center. It will have me at the center. I'm taking Israel apart, and I'm putting her back together again. But when she's put back together again, she's going to be a multinational entity. Right? And some Christians have misused this 
in horrific ways um, to justify anti-Semitism, even violent anti-Semitism. Uh, Christians should not be anti-Semitic. Our Messiah is Jewish. All the apostles were Jewish. Most of the major movement was Jewish and were built out of the Hebrew Bible. What Christian, Christianity is, is a Messianic Jewish sect. It's a Messianic Jewish sect. That's what we are. So we shouldn't be anti-Semitic, right? But unfortunately, throughout history, that's absolutely what many Christians have been. So I, I feel like I needed to address that. But, the, but that doesn't mean that there's nothing that, that wouldn't be offensive to somebody who is, who is an Orthodox Jew today because they're, they're, I mean, Jesus' clear teaching was that ethnic Israel is no longer going to be the center of God's plan. He was going to be the center of God's plan. And so what ends up happening is that whoever is connected to him is part of God's people. In the past, you became God's people as you were connected to ethnic Israel. So there was something cultural bound up in all that. Now, you're one of God's people if you're connected to Jesus. And so the church becomes the new Israel, and the church is this multinational, multi-ethnic entity. And much of the New Testament is, is written by people trying to grapple with this reality that God's people is now not only Jews, but Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews. So the Bible is a story. What this means for us is that the Bible is a story about God's people. And so when we go back, we read the, the Hebrew Bible, we're reading stories about God's people. We are God's people, and they're God's people. And so we should read those stories as though they are our stories, as though somehow they inform our identity, too. The, the Old Testament isn't just for ethnic Israel, it's for us. We are reading about God's people throughout the ages. It belongs to us now because we belong to Israel's Messiah. So we can go back and we read these stories of Israel, we can relate to them because it's all ours. That's my first point. Uh, the second point is about the law. So covenantal theology tells us something about the law. And what, what I mean by, by the law is just sort of the, the way of life that God wants us to live, like the, the way of the kingdom, okay? So there's sometimes this way of putting our Bibles together where we start to think, you know, back in the day, holiness was really important. Li living by God's way was really important. And now, praise God in Christ, now it's not important. Have you ever heard, like, can you relate to that? Or that's sometimes kind of how the gospel is talked about. It's like, holiness used to be important, now it's not. Praise be to God. You know, that's, that's probably not what the Bible is actually teaching. Um, so, but this sometimes happy, happens where we, we start to think like holiness is what we need saving from. You know, the, the law, the way of the Lord, that, that all obligates us to avoid sin. We don't do that so well. So what we really need is we need to be released from our obligation. Holiness used to be important, now it's not. Instead, the way that we should think about this is that holiness isn't what we need saving from. It's actually what we need saving for. Sin is what we need saving from. Right? So does that make sense? Holiness isn't what we need saving from. Sin is what we need saving from. Sin is a kind of slavery. Sin is limiting on our very humanity. Holiness is how we become in touch once again with what it was supposed to mean to be human. 
So a way to illustrate this, imagine that you're trying to kind of break into a new exciting field. It's meaningful work. Like this isn't just, you know, nine to five. Like this is something that you want to put your hands to. This is the ideal, this is the dream job. Like, this, like if I could spend my, all the time in my life on something, this is it. So you're looking for like entry-level jobs in this field, and then you find that even the most entry-level jobs require five years experience. So you, you have to, so you're kind of in this catch-22 where it's like, I have to learn the job in order to get the job, but in order to learn the job, I have to get the job. Which happens all the time, by the way. So you're in this, this position where you have to learn the job in order to get the job, but uh, you also have to get the job in order to learn the job. So what are you gonna do? That's the dilemma of the old covenant. That's the old covenant. Now, it would do you no good if someone came up to you and said, hey, I have good news for you. You can have the job title, and you don't even have to work the job. We're going to let you walk around saying that this is your job, and you get to go home and watch Netflix. <laughs> That's not good news, because you want the job. That's what I want to spend my time doing. Why is it good news that I, <clears throat> now I get to burn all my my uh, calories doing this, you, you know, uh, that's terrible news. That would be terrible news because you're not able to work the job. The gospel is not good news if the good news is now you don't get to learn the way of the Lord. Now you don't get to be shaped by holiness. That's terrible news. Now let's imagine the situation a different way. What if somebody came up to you and said, hey, look, you're completely unqualified for this position. There are many other contenders who are much stronger than you. Uh, the person who deserves this job is someone who already fits it. But out of the grace of the CEO, we are giving you the job. And you have incredible job security. You're in. You are in. You have the title. You can put your hand to this work now. You, you have the identity of being in this job, and, and now it's, it's your task to, to become what you are. That's good news. And that is way closer to the gospel. That is the gospel. The good news of the, of the gospel is that you actually are being saved from sin. Not just saved from the penalty of sin. That would be cheap. You are being saved from its very presence in your life. And that's good news. I should call it there. So I'm going to pray, and then um, I want to invite Steve up to, to introduce the, the next element of our, of our service. Lord, we, we praise you for what you have accomplished in Christ. Um, Lord, I pray that we would be humbled by the, the gift of your grace to us in Christ. And Lord, I pray that you, would, um, that you would make available to us all the riches in your scriptures and that we would respond to all of it. That we would cooperate with every part so that we can be the sort of people that you desire Trinity Community Church to be. We love you, Lord, and pray this in your name. Amen.